Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders, technology leaders in higher education, and most importantly, students. To chat on hot topics, share solutions, collaborate, and envision the future of higher education together. Let's illuminate higher education once and for all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. We have an exciting guest for us today, Patrick Partridge, the president of WGU Academy at Western Governors University. Western Governors University mission and the Western Governors University Academy's mission is a little different. WGU's Academy's mission is to develop and introduce new innovative approaches to college readiness, which we'll hear all about, on a large scale that can serve multiple institutions. Western Governors University is the biggest university right now. Patrick Partridge has started working with WGU in 2002 and worked through 2018 as Chief Marketing Officer, overseeing marketing, public relations, enrollment, and other areas during that time. When he joined WGU, the university had about 400 students. And today, WGU is the biggest university with over 130,000 students across 50 states. Patrick Partridge has undergraduate degree, grad degree, and MBA, and he has spent several years in general management, entrepreneurship, and especially in the areas of cable television, paging, cellular, publishing, and education. If that all of that wasn't enough, he's also an author of a book on political humor, which I'm hoping to hear about, and he's working hard, or maybe hardly, we'll have to ask him about that, on his second novel. Patrick, welcome to End-to-End's Illuminate Higher Education podcast. Thank you, Karen. I um, appreciate the invitation and I'm humbled by it. It's been several years since you and I have talked, and so it's uh, it's great to be with you again. Absolutely. Patrick and I have been friends since 2014, I believe, where we worked together on an innovative product called iTransfer. Now it has taken, uh, Patrick has since then found a different technology to work on it. But the one of the things I remember about the product is Patrick's innovation about how to make it easy for students to be able to take any credits that they've received from any university and apply them towards WG's program. Because the reason why that was powerful was at around 2013, 2014, institutions were preventing people or students from gaining credits at other university and moving it to WGU or other university. But we'll keep that aside. There is a lot of innovations about Patrick that has led him to becoming president of WGU Academy. So the first thing I want to ask you, Patrick, is what is really wrong with education to begin with? Why should we change it with the transformational things that you're doing as president of WGU Academy and also as WGU University, Western Governors University, doing on online learning? It's interesting, Karen, the way you asked the question, which was, you know, speaking to the fact of, you know, using a negative, what is wrong? And I think that's a fair question, and we'll try to address it quickly. But the challenge of what's going on with education is, is as much as anything wrapped up with the challenges of what's going on in our, our society, and in particular, the general business and employment world, you know, 
I'm, I'm old enough to remember when the idea that the economy would be, quote, global was seen as a new concept. And nobody really at that time even envisioned the idea that global would be as simple as a cell phone in your hand, meaning that you were connected to the entire world very easily, except for, of course, places where you're being blocked. That's an interesting question. <laughs> exactly. So education has a tough time of keeping up with, and certainly a very tough time of getting ahead of changes that are going on in culture and the business world. And so also over that period of time, we've actually struggled with challenges of, of equality of opportunity. And, and that's certainly something that WGU, broadly speaking, is, is very uh, sensitive to. For decades now, we have not ha even gotten close to having 50% of adults with a post-secondary post credential, such as a bachelor's or, or master's degree, um, and even in many cases, associate's degree. And that problem, of course, starts early in individuals' education cycles, meaning they struggle to develop the core competencies to be a successful student. Now, I want to come back to that topic of core competencies because there's a tendency tendency to think that core competencies immediately goes to something like math or reading right. or writing abilities. And those are valid. But there are a lot of other kinds of core competencies that are psychological, uh, which is a focus area of academy. So what's wrong with, with education? The challenge with education is that it's very traditional, by almost by definition. The university as an idea is several hundred years old and arguably as close to what it was 500 years ago today in general as anything else in the world. Most other aspects of society and, and culture have changed more than higher ed has. Now, there could be good reasons for that, but there are also some challenges. One of the challenges is that the world has moved faster and the demands on individual have changed. And so over the ensuing, especially over the last couple of decades, there's been this sort of disconnect between what individuals are looking for in their lives and what, in particular, higher education is providing, and in some cases, just secondary education. And, and that disconnect has been a real challenge. And in many ways, the mission of WGU which has been primarily for over two decades aimed at helping adults pursue bachelor's and master's degree. Primary aim of WGU has been able to try to kind of rebridge the connections between the objectives that people have to succeed in life, to obtain a degree that gives them an opportunity to advance in their careers and provide better for their, themselves and their family. WGU has tried to bridge that gap with kind of new approaches to education that would make it easier, and I don't want to use the word academically easier, but make it more flexible and affordable for individuals to be able to pursue their objectives where traditional education is just not structured that way. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things. One is when you say educational institutions have not changed, if you look at most other businesses, there is an incentive structure for them to become better right? Whether it is a taxi business that has been disrupted by Uber, where the incentivization was coming from giving better access to the, to the people who want to hail cabs, or Airbnb looking at disrupting the hotel industry. But whenever you see a traditional industry like higher education, 
there's almost a disincentivization for them to disrupt because they believe that the current four-year model of a student coming in freshman and graduating from the college, irrespective of how many kids fall through the cracks, is still a good thing for them because they are getting paid for students sitting in the classroom. And this is where WGU is. So there's definitely an inertia problem that in higher education where they are comfortable with the current business model, so they don't want to change. And this is where Western Governors has turned the problem on its head and said, let's not worry about how much time, how much money we're going to charge to the students based on how much time they spend in the classroom. Let's worry about incentivizing a student based on the skills they earn. And what led you guys, what led WGU to this disruptive process and you know, while there were other online programs available, what led to the success of WGU to really be the leader in this process? So uh, the two questions, one is, while the traditional academy is trying to stay in the status quo, what led WGU to say, we are gonna change the status quo? Number two, once you set this goal in 2002 or 2004, what led WGU to be more successful than other online players out there? Great challenging questions, and they are our link. So let me see if I can organize my thoughts in a way that works and is clear. I thought your example of Uber was a good one because Uber did disrupt something that had been around a long time, i.e. the taxi business. And it did so because it zeroed in on a couple of very specific weak spots in the system, brought and, and focused on specific needs that the customers had. Now, on top of that was certainly in the earliest years, a lower cost model as well. We'll come back to that. Traditional education has a much more kind of complex challenge, especially when you think about a more traditional four-year institution, private or state. And it's one of the few major products in our lives where there is essentially one or two fixed start dates, purchase dates, use of the product dates. And if you think about that, that's pretty extraordinary. Here we are into the 21st century, and to think that there's an entire industry that limits our ability to engage their product for the most part, except once or twice a year is pretty astounding. So that's one area of inflexibility in the system that WGU and a few others, but particularly WGU, disrupted. So for those of you who don't know much about WGU, WGU has starts every month and has done that essentially since it was begun 20 plus years ago. The other one that you alluded to was this perception of value. And if you think about the traditional higher education experience, it's a complex set of values that they're trying to deliver. Long ago, education moved away away from just helping someone develop skills and a knowledge base, even the, the broader kind of knowledge that one gets through general education, liberal arts kinds of of courses. And I am no critic of those. So I want to be real clear about that up front. And I'll get a chance. I'll explain why. But it also included campus life. It also included opportunities to socialize, meet a future spouse, go to football games, participate in athletics, etc. So the college experience tended to become something that was seen as other than just 
education. So the richness of that experience is one of the reasons why colleges have been one of the, the, the one of the constraints for colleges to be able to break out of their paradigm because you know it's pretty hard to have you know this kind of blended environment if students are starting every month. Right. So, so the structure of higher education the traditional way is such that it it brought people together as this this cohort and it gave them this kind of different experience. And and that kind of those kinds of issues while we tend not to think of them as quote educational issues for students and their parents and particular parents who themselves had previously gone to college these are these are important and they're not trivial and so the the traditional model still is holding on to that that framework of thinking and encouraging that framework of thinking in its marketing and in everything else that's going on including how well the football team is doing Sure. So well, we shouldn't expect we shouldn't expect radical change from higher ed because it's it's too difficult for them to kind of, for the most part, completely change their 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 overall product. And you, and you were going to say something, right? So I think there's I was kind of reacting about the start date problem. Is that it's not just a start date about fall to the fall semester, spring semester, but there's also another start date problem with a traditional four year degree in that. The only way for a student or for 90% of the students to finish their four-year degree is between the time where they finish their high school and go to college, uh, sorry, go to work stream. And if for some reason a student decided to drop out of college after first year or jump straight to work stream right after high school, it is almost impossible for the student to get back into work stream. So, and that is where they're in a, in a lot of ways forever disadvantaged because now they're just a high school graduate with 15 years experience instead of saying I'm a bachelor in you know, arts or sciences or technology with five years experience. So this is where I think WGU solves both the problems for what I understand. One is, yes, you can join, get admission any every month. So that's definitely solves the fall, spring semester problem. But you can also start learning anytime you want, whether you are 15-year-old or 18-year-old right after high school or 48 years old, you know, in the middle of your job, professional experience saying, I need to get additional credentials or signals to get myself in a better position for my current employer or future employer. So those are the two start date problems I feel like WGU solves. Can you explain about the second problem of, of how you're supporting lifelong learners better? Let, let me not start off with the term lifelong learners, but let's start off, but, but let's kind of come back to your point because I think it's a great sure. point. There's a tendency to think that, again, to your point, that this model applies with someone finishing high school and proceeding on to college. And you're absolutely right. It becomes increasingly difficult for the student to go back to college as they move further into the rest of their lives, either because they've started a job, because they get married, even conceivably have a family. And so that disconnect between their high school education and what might be their educational aspirations, can, that gap can increase over time. And it actually, in it, that, that problem even shows up for students who go on to, let's say community college or, or even a four-year school but attempt to try to work, for example, full-time while they're in school. And, and unfortunately, while that has a logical kind of appeal in order to minimize, for example, school loan debt, 
The data unfortunately shows that it tends to be a dead end and those students are much less likely to graduate than the student who has the ability to launch into a degree program full time. And the reason is because the model, again, is pretty inflexible. And it, there's so many things that work against the student who's trying to, let's say, hold a job, maybe have a family, and, and at the same time, pursue a degree within a traditional school model. The model really doesn't fit. So what WGU did was, from the very beginning, embraced a couple of really interesting ideas. One, as we've talked about, was sort of lots of start dates. That was huge. A more important one was the idea that the student was going to be able to prove competence in order to advance through courses and advance through their degree program at a pace that was personalized based on their ability to demonstrate competence, ability to master the material. So many of the people on the call have heard the term competency-based education, and there are somewhat slight different variations of that. But the essence of competency-based education is simply just prove it, meaning it is not about seat time. It is about the demonstration of the mastery of the content within particular courses. And interestingly enough, a regular student in a traditional school to, to get a degree does actually not have to prove competency in all of the courses that they're taking. It's quite Are easy. Are saying that uh, finishing a test is not a competency? <laughs> no, 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 no. Finishing, completing a test is, is, is a one form of demonstration of competency. But I'm even talking about the fact that, you know, you can get a D in a course and a whole bunch of C's and end up with a degree and maybe not really having developed the same level of sort of competency. But let's not get too deep into the weeds. Here. Sure, sure. I, I definitely have, yeah, I definitely have follow-up questions on the fact that those tests, whether it's midterm or summatives, are also extremely flawed because they are only just-in-time and point-in-time references. But I'll let you finish the competency discussion because that's very relevant. Yeah, the realm of assessment is something I've observed closely but can't claim to be an expert on, on the whole realms of assessment. And sometimes it's a question of the summative impact of, of lots of different assessments not just a summative assessment. But in any case, the, the idea behind WGU was to break apart the idea of time in the seat or time in a course and let that be personalized based on the readiness of the student to be able to submit papers, to submit assignments, to sit for objective exams, for example. And so that allowed WGU to, to basically also make it very personalized. Now, most of the study is asynchronous, meaning the student is doing it on his or her own time schedule. That also allowed for the flexibility for studying and completing assessments to be done on that student's personal life schedule from day to day, week to week. So at WGU, it is nothing for our students to be taking major assessment exams on a Sunday night, either submitting assignments or literally taking a proctored objective exam. So we, we've sort of blown the model apart so that you could then personalize it down to the individual as much as possible. And we continue to work on ways to improve that personalization, you know, kind of going forward. So that was huge. And there are a lot of things that are related to that. There are two other things that I want to mention that come back to your question, Kieran, about what were the keys to success for WGU? One, and this one is absolutely huge, 
is low tuition. So from the very beginning, as a nonprofit online university, WGU was determined to not only keep tuition low, but to control our costs so that we could continue to keep tuition low. In fact, we went eight years with no tuition increase. The last couple of years have been very modest tuition increases. But essentially at WGU, most programs are a little bit more than $3,000 every six months. And within that six months, a student is free to complete as many courses as he or she can. So that is the sort of model that allows for lower basic tuition and an efficient use of somebody's time and money in order to be able to potentially accelerate their program. The last part of the success at WGU is one that it sort of grew into and has continued to work on, and that is the mentoring model. Now, most of us hear the word mentor, and we think of somebody that might be a more senior person at an employer where we work who's mentoring us. There's some similarity to that use of the word at WGU, but essentially a mentor is a faculty member who is assigned to each student the day they start and who engages and supports and provides all kinds of encouragement as well as you know, advice, mentoring over the entire time that student is at WGU. So while there are changes that happen because mentors move on or they get promoted, et cetera, in general, most students are with the same mentor for as much as two, three, and four years time. And that builds a relationship that encourages that adult to persist even in the face of difficulties. And that is tremendous. The mentoring model at WGU is unique and has not, uh, while there've been some talk of other schools adapting it, it's very challenging and it's expensive. And so right. the mentoring model has been in some ways the glue that helps hold the rest of it together. So you made it affordable by making it $3,000 every six months, all you can eat buffet, for, for example. And you can also made it online so that a student can learn whenever he wants or she wants, he or she wants, and finish assessment whenever you know, the student wants. And also, most importantly, one of the issues that I've seen with online learning especially is that there is a very high chance for a student to lose interest and uh, you know they don't want to interact or they get tired of reading stuff online. And that's where the mentoring program comes in. So can you talk to me about like what that intervention looks like? How does a mentor know if a student has stopped learning? What are some of the internal um, milestones or metrics that your mentors are following other than saying calling the student every day, which is obviously not going to work? Can you talk to us about that? I, I will. I, I do want to emphasize that the mentor to student ratio is probably much lower than most people on hearing this podcast would imagine because they think about a traditional university there might be one advisor, or even in high school, one advisor to 500 students, yeah. or even higher in some cases. At WGU, the mentor relationship is more like one to 80, one to 100. So there really is the ability for the mentors to be personal with each of the students that they are mentoring. Typically, during the student's first term, the first six months at WGU, the mentoring engagement with the student is pretty regular. Sometimes as frequently as once a week, think of it as once every week or two weeks, and focus a lot on 
progress that's being made by the student, as well as dealing with kind of concerns and what I would call sort of psychological, those kinds of things you're talking about, the sort of psychological things that get in the way of a student succeeding. Gradually over time, the personal contacts may lessen, but that's largely up to the student. So that students are able to, if they need help or if they're working on something, to reach out to the mentor for advice. Now, keep in mind, I said working on something. I don't necessarily mean that the mentor is a subject matter expert on all of the courses that the students take. They're generally not and are not expected to be. They really are there as a resource. And in some cases, to actually run interference for the student across the kinds of things that pop up that the student might engage with, even in some cases, things like financial aid, but certainly things like assessments and, and, and other kinds of issues. The mentors do have great access to data about the activities or the success rates of the students who are assigned to them. And that data is a, another key feature that's behind the scenes that WGU has, which is a, an amazingly robust data warehouse that's tied down to specific courses where, wherever possible. And it's not 100% the same for all courses. And then progress of that student through those, those courses, including attempts or registrations to take an assessment, attempts at the assessment, whether the student passes or fails on an assessment, and that the mentor is able to kind of see data in addition to conversations that the student has. You know, I, I said something just in real quickly, you know, no Kieran's questions, but I said passes or failed. I forgot to mention the fact that WGU, by being competency-based, is also not grade-based. Right. So there are essentially two, two grades at WGU. And it's not pass-fail, it's pass-not-pass. And so we actually expect students in the course of their time at WGU to not pass certain assessments, particularly performance assessments, papers, worksheets, other kinds of projects. And not pass grade is not seen as a negative to WGU or hopefully to the students. It is essentially, a, in some cases, a progress measure. Now, of course, the students want to pass every assessment on the first attempt, but we assume that students will have maybe multiple attempts before they've submitted something or even in case of an objective exam, pass it at a high enough level that we're comfortable with their competence in, on that assessment. So pass not pass is also a very, very powerful tool. And you know, even with new people that come to WGU from an academic background, you know, I like to point out to them that that education from K to K to 20 is one of the few, if not the only place in our entire society where we get letter grades. Right. Almost every other aspect of our professional lives, of the rest of our life is competency based. Yep. What am I talking about? Think about it. If you wanted to take up learning the piano, you're going to sit and go to lessons to learn piano. And at the end of that lesson, the teacher is not going to say, oh, you got a B minus today. They're <laughs> going to give you some advice. They're going to mentor you. They're going to tell you what you need to work on and you're going to practice and you're going to come back and you're going to get better. You're going to become more competent. Now, eventually you could be in a situation where you're in a contest as a brilliant pianist and you might be you know, trying to win something like that. But that's a rarity in most cases. Think about work. At work, while you don't want to fail at any of the tasks that are assigned to you, the workplace is generally pretty tolerant of the idea that we make mistakes and that we evolve and we, we grow and we you know, succeed over time. We increase our competence. And even the most significant licenses 
that we have that we award in our society. The MD, the JD, and others require passing a very challenging competency-based assessment. And many people don't pass on the first yep. time. It does not mean all of those years have been a failure and they will never become a doctor or a lawyer. It means they go back and study some more and retake the test. And so the, the whole realm of competency base is actually dominant in our society rather than letter grades. Letter grades are, I don't know enough about the history of letter grades right. where it came from, but they do more of a disservice than, than a positive. Well, I think this is a, the, the letter grades is, is kind of a function of the cohort based moving the students from one level to another, right? So we have built a cohort based signaling system that says sixth grade, if a student is six years old, he needs to be in first grade, he or she needs to be in first grade, and they need to be moved regardless of what they learned or not from first grade to second grade at the end of the year. So there's a signal. And while you know, each student is in a different part of the journey, one student can be really good at math. He might be at third grade level math and first grade level English and maybe kindergarten level sciences. There is a kindergarten level science, but <laughs> keep that aside. <laughs> so, so, but the signal is just saying, you know, okay, we just need to move this cohort from one group to another and that's all they care about. So that's why, you know, we have the signals that are completely ineffective because all we're doing is moving them from one cohort to another, just like, uh, you know, I used a cows in a cow pen analogy saying they are moving from one, one group to another. But the personalized approach that you're talking about with Western governors, where each student is evaluated on their personal journey based on their competencies, removes that cohort concept where each student can is only evaluated against themselves, and that gives them more flexibility. But also it adds more cost to the universities. So how is Western Governors able to provide it at a $3,000 all-you-can-eat buffet and provide this infrastructure while other typical four-year universities can't? Can you explain what is WGU doing better to provide a more affordable education, but also more personalized education in personalized competency-based education for students? Yeah, um, you know, there, there are actually powerful examples where, where cohorts are great. And, and I would argue that there are some, you know, certainly some things that are related to traditional education where a cohort in the sense of a group of students can be very powerful. But that's not the same thing as thinking about what we forced ourselves into with having like September or August start dates for thousands of people at the same time. So I'm, I'm not, I don't or want cohorting to, them in age group saying 30 yeah. years old, seventh grade, that, where yes. does that come yeah. from? Like, and, and I'm very sympathetic to the challenges of how to personalize K-12. Many, many years ago, I heard an individual, can't remember his name, unfortunately, that was talking about the fact that it's actually the special needs children at K-12 who have what's called an IEP, an Individualized ex, um, Educational Education. Program. So it's it, we do that for the ones that are particularly, you know, perhaps disabled, but we don't do it for all the students. And he was arguing, yeah. we need to move in that direction. And I, I always thought that was interesting. That was actually before I, um, I was working for WGU, and I remember that lesson sunk in with me. 
Um, so back to your question, Val, how, how does WGU keep costs down? Well, it is hard. Some of it was just years and years of being dedicated to the proposition that our price point to our customer was going to be driven by our ability to manage costs. And therefore, that became a philosophical commitment to cost management. Ultimately, of course, scale has helped. WGU maintains certain aspects of costs, but for the most part, you know, money is just reinvested into much better data systems, improved platforms, new things that we can add to serving the student. So without going into the details around, you know, the cost structure, I would probably just say it is a discipline at WGU and has been for a long time. And because we started with the assumption that we would not simply have annual tuition increases like traditional education often has had, it forced us to be kind of disciplined in our, in our thinking. And it permeates across a number of, of different dimensions of the university. So, and, you know, by being a nonprofit, as I said, we never looked to, to serve other shareholders other than, of course, maybe future generations of WGU students by reinvesting in improvements. There's some major, major investments underway right now for the next, that will serve students for the next 10 years. Um, Great. Many, many, many seven figures attached to them as a matter of fact. So let me ask you a contrarian question because we've we talked about how WGU is being more accessible, more affordable, but from a personalized basis, my son is a junior in college, uh, junior in high school. He's 17 years old and he will be applying for colleges in two years now. You know, despite all my bravado about, you know, four-year colleges and everything, I still want my son to have four-year college experience because it gives him that unique experience that he will miss out, if you will, if he just goes straight to Workstream or does a four-year program in an online campus. You know, he won't have the experience I had, you know, crashing in the dorms, being part of her fraternities or sororities, or watching the football games with his friends, chilling out in the libraries. So all the things that come along with a typical college experience. So I understand that when I say stuff like that, it is talking from a, you know, for lack of a better word, position of privilege in that, yes, I can afford it. And I want to send my son and daughter to a four-year college. And I do understand that you want to send them to online campus if you can't afford it. But I want to change that and say, how can we do it in an online setting where they are not robbed of the student experiences that you get from a typical four-year college? Is there some kind of a hybrid model that you can do where students are still getting some student experience while learning online? So I will actually predict, Kieran, that your son will actually have a hybrid experience when he goes to school. There are relatively few colleges or universities now that don't offer a lot of online classes. And if you talk to an administrator who's open and honest at a school that offers a lot of online classes, you will simply find that the kids prefer them. It's the, it's the sections of an online class that and multiple sections of an online class that fill up first. And so while you might want your son to have these non-academic social and other kinds of valuable experiences, I can assure you he's going to have an on a hybrid experience. And yet 
the university is not finding ways to control costs. And so, you know, it's kind of a double-edged sword for the parent because whether they realize it or not, a lot of what they're paying for, going to be paying for, is online education in the future for a couple of reasons. One is the universities are finally going to get better at how to do online education. The pandemic has brought that to the forefront. So over the course of the next five or 10 years, and I don't even want to call it online education, technology-enabled education will improve dramatically. A generation that has absolutely grown up with cell phones in their hands are going to absolutely seek out flexible opportunities, even if they're at a traditional classroom, a traditional university. So the hybrid experience is going to be the norm, not the exception in, well, probably is right now, but it's certainly going to be. In but what about for WGU students? So my question is really about, so there are two parts to this. Yes, institutions, universities are providing online coursework, but that's not the same as a personalized competency-based education that Western governors provides. So I think, you know, there's a big distinction between saying, yeah, Math 101 is now online, so learn by yourself and finish a test. I don't like it. In fact, that's not to say I would much rather Varun go to a classroom and learn all the Math 101 classes because that doesn't add value either. Ideally, it will be better for them to learn in a personalized manner like Western Governors does, but also get the student experience. So the question for you is really, how are you, is Western Governors looking at providing some sort of online experience for students, sorry, in-person experience for students that are taking online courses also, or is that not on the cards anytime soon? Soon is always an interesting word. So I would say not anytime soon on certain aspects of it. I will say there are a couple of, of ideas that are actually quite challenging for a, 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 a university with a national footprint and potentially growing international footprint to be able to do some of the things that you're talking about. And it depends a little bit on what student we're talking about. So at least in the case of WGU currently, the vast majority of our students are working full-time and they're working in, in meaningful jobs. Some are not, they're trying to get out of meaningless jobs into a, a new career. So they're already experiencing other things in their lives for which going to a football game on a campus is like so far away from what <laughs> exactly. they're interested in yeah. that it might as well be, no, no, I'll watch it on television if I have time. So those aspects of the traditional movie TV enabled view of what college is about is a far removed from what most people at WGU are concerned about. And they are getting, they are having robust lives in these other dimensions, work, family, church, their own personal sports, for example, uh, team and, and personal. So that student body really just does not care about what uh, they're missing in the social aspects of a traditional education. Now, if you start talking about where does WGU go to help students who might be younger, who actually need the flexibility and personalization of WGU, or who want to get finished faster or finished at less cost, yep. there are some things that WGU is looking at. And interestingly enough, one of the most the, the ones that might have the greatest potential are on the ground and or digital internships, because now the internship is bringing that individual into an experience that is connected to what their education and career objectives are 
And, and that can make a tremendous difference. So one of the things kind of on the roadmap is to look at ways to expand the opportunity for our students to do, to do internships. We have talked about the potential, given our size, of being able to have local gatherings, either of a social nature or studying nature, in sort of uh, public settings or semi-public settings, such as WeWorks type offices. I don't know the number of students that we have in the Atlanta area right now, but I would guess it's several hundred. So, yeah. And so we have the potential in certain areas to be able to allow students to, to come together. That's at least being discussed and, you know, will eventually be probably piloted. So sure. there are things... There are things that WGU can do that allow it to be a bit more hybrid or, you know, a bit more personal. And then frankly, you know, you and I are on a Zoom call and Zoom and a whole bunch of other technologies now allow many to many kind of gatherings and connections. And that can include a host of different things. So now 10 months into being remote, you know, yep. we've learned to bring other things to the fore you know, in an online environment. You know, yeah, I you're absolutely correct. I think there's there's two parts to this. Like even when you look at in this corona time, right, when we're all quarantined in working from our home offices, talking about in-person experiences sounds almost corny and weird, but it's actually, there's a tremendous social cost for my, my daughter. She's in eighth grade, uh, learning everything virtually in that there is some real concern that they're not, they're missing out on the social interaction part of their life. And you're, you're true about, you're right about the adult learners that are already in work that have some personal interactions going on and study is just for them to catch up. But if you're asking a student right out of high school to do a four-year online curriculum or three-year online curriculum, depending on how quickly they finish it, giving them some sort of social interactions in lieu of the classroom or in addition to the classroom, that will make them be part of a bigger community, like you're talking about a local community event or some kind of a facilitated interaction to discuss, I don't know, Freud psychology or Nietzschean philosophy, whatever is something that it's on their mind is really powerful. So, you know, again, I think where WGU is definitely ahead is the personalized competency-based education, which is where every educational institution should seek. And if there is some way to merge the student experience with WGU online. So my question is, is there a way, opportunity for WGU to like license the learning concept or online learning platform in such a way that if a typical four-year college wants to use it to deliver more personalized learning to their students in addition to their you know, putting courses on Canvas, if you will. Not right now. And there's some potential that our platform, if you will, in the future could be itself a product that WGU makes available. WGU did, especially going back about four or five years, we sort of opened the door, I would say open the kimono to kind of explain to others what we did. We participated in a couple of grants to actually help a number of community colleges try to evolve competency-based programs within their community college settings. And not surprisingly, most of them found it very hard. And so, you know, there, there certainly might be opportunities as 
as history progresses in higher ed and, right. and maybe we are at a bit of a pivot point right now where things might accelerate, but we have been open to sharing certain aspects of what WGU does to facilitate others. And as I said, even participate, I think it was a Gates grant to help a, a number of community colleges kind of try to learn how to do this. There, there are some challenges when the institutional structure and the governance models of those institutions get in the way, not to mention all of the other system things that are required, especially if you're going to break away from the traditional calendar. So, you know, it, this is not a, a five pound weight lift. This is a 500 pound weight lift here for, you know, most institutions to tackle it. Not that we're discouraging them. We think there's still an opportunity. And, and frankly, you know, even within a traditional calendar, there should be more and better ways for students to be able to, to be more personally paced, perhaps to complete additional coursework, perhaps not to worry about whether or not they have to go slower. Things like that conceivably can be built within the uh, traditional calendar. But it, it, it takes a lot of institutional fortitude to break from from you know prior constraints and especially prior thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like I think where I was going with that is right now, if you look at every institution, think of each college as their own bookstore. They're writing their own books, they're printing their own books, they're putting their bookstore to put put them in the in the libraries and selling them to their students. I'm basically saying Math 101 as a book. And there is nothing unique about Math 101. You know, it's the same math 101, whether you're learning it in Stanford or in a community college near my home. There is the same, you know, intermediate algebra. I don't need a Nobel laureate to teach that, in fact. So there is some opportunity that can be had where schools can start utilizing the resources and only focus on things that they can actually provide value on. But you know, I know that is light years ahead, and I want to ask that question as a vision later, but before I want to change the topic for, for a minute. I, I, will, we... I would love to talk about that topic because it sure, goes back please. to thoughts I had probably eight or 10 years ago, even pre-MOOC. But it, you know, we'll Yeah, go back. ahead. I would like to hear your thoughts on it because the question that I have is why <laughs> should each institution build their own coursework, build their own content? And yes, there are sometimes you have to build it if there are specialized programs only offered at the institution. But why should Georgia Tech build a full content curriculum of liberal arts when they're not the experts in liberal arts or a liberal arts program like you know, Concordia University build a full technology stack when they're not good at, when they're, when they're not specialized for it. So if we can leverage the content across universities and platforms like WGU, then education will surely become more affordable and more accessible for all students. So that's where I was thinking, you know, you had some ideas. Sp spoken like a true technology guy, you appreciate the potential of something having scale. And, and you, gave, you gave perfect examples, ones that I had thought about a long time ago. I was joking about saying it was pre-MOOC. So there was, a, there was a small conference that I was speaking at in, um, in California Oh, I would have to. I would have to guess it was probably like 2006, 2007, something like that. And I remember in like the Q and A session after my my talk, basically saying, you know, look, in the future, there's no reason why a great professor can't simply be his or her own brand and detach it from 
a university or at least have it, you know, kind of indirectly attached at a certain point in time. So I used the example of Peter Drucker, those of you who are old enough who know, anything, you know, something about business writers and business thinkers. Peter Drucker was some people think was the, the most brilliant overall business strategist and business thinker and, and writer on the subject. So read Peter Drucker's books if you haven't. Sure. Uh, it might seem a little dated, but but in any case, it's like who wouldn't take a business strategy course from Peter Drucker if they could? Well, Peter Drucker did become his own brand, but it was attached and limited to a particular university in order to be able to get access to him other than reading his books. So I started thinking about, well, why not? Why not allow an individual to create the world's greatest? Math 101 is, is okay, but why not let them create the world's greatest Shakespeare course or the world's greatest you know, artificial intelligence course? Sure. Going to the other extreme and then allow other universities to actually let that individual teach that course. Now, obviously, we're at that point now where technology makes that possible. You could also do it where there were, of course, breakout groups. You could have yep. the equivalent of TAs that are providing mentoring and additional instruction. You could do all of the things that might be done at a large university with the equivalent of a large lecture class. And you could do the entire thing online, including study groups, including lots and lots of practice type of resources. You know, you could build an entirely wonderfully robust course. If you wanted to, you could require students to have their own virtual reality headsets, that that became part of the technology that was used for a course. And so you could truly build this wonderful um, course that was scalable globally. And you could do it where some parts of it were asynchronous if you wanted to, or the entire course could be asynchronous. So there's lots of options about how you could, how something like that could occur. Ultimately, in for that to count toward a degree at a school, another school, there's a couple of things that have to be done with care. One is that you have to think really hard about what, what, how you're going to assess it. And that means what are you going to do to give credit for the individual who completes that course? Now, that could be letter grade pace or like WGU, pass, not pass kind of grading. But you ultimately have to figure out how to assess it. And as soon as you go to figure out how to assess, you realize the importance of assessing. Then you've really got to spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to do that assessment, how you're going to make it secure, how you're going to do the things so that the integrity of the passing or the grade is assured. We are at that point these days, and WG has been doing it for years, where the integrity of assessments for remote students is not that hard. In fact, it's as good as in a classroom. So we are at that point where you could design courses. And then ultimately, what you're going to realize is that you're talking about the loss of jobs of faculty members, you know, that are teaching math 101 and are teaching some of these other things. And you're also talking about the loss of that personal instructor standing in front of the classroom that you want your son to have. So we have to deal with the, the non-technical aspects of, of handling this or, or managing this in order for it to be widely accepted, but we're headed that way. In my mind, yeah. there's, there's certainty that we're headed that way. Khan Academy was probably the first good example focused on K-12 of where that happened, where there was coursework that were developed by Sal Khan 
on basic math and a whole bunch of other things. And it just got put up on the internet. And then suddenly students and teachers from everywhere began to use that. And in some cases it became a critical part of, of courses in K-12. But that was pretty haphazard. If you were to do it more systematically and you were thinking about how to, to manage the assessment, you could make this a really amazing, robust experience. And, and we're headed that way. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're you're absolutely correct in that there will be some reorganization that has to occur, but uh, I'm not sure sure it will require some faculty to jobs to be lost. You know, I think these are the same arguments they made about ATMs coming in and bank tellers losing their job. Nobody really lost and nobody loses jobs because of technology. Yes, the jobs do get reorganized. And, but the real thing that occurs is you're moving mundane parts of your job so that a robot or an available resource can take care of. So, but that's a broader discussion. However, I believe that if we can move, for example, if we can move instructors from content delivery and content creation to constant facilitation and personalized learning management, that's a better use of instructor and faculty members time than standing in front of a whiteboard and drawing out like two plus two is equal to four. Like, you know, that is, I don't think, again, obviously I'm simplifying stuff, but that is where we should go. Like the, if we can free up instructors from the duties of content creation and content management, then they can be better teachers for our students. And that's what I want. I want facilitation of learning. I want students to come to classroom and say, you know, I have this question about, uh, you know, like your example, Shakespeare's Hamlet, and why did he put a comma here instead of, I don't know, semicolon, you know, stuff like that. So that's the level of discussion I would like to have instead of reading out the poem and just asking people to listen and write, take notes. So I know we're coming to the top of the hour here and finishing up this podcast. Before I end with my last question, I want to ask you about your books. You said that you published your first book on political political humor and second book is in the works. I would like to hear about your books and you know how we can get hold of those books. Well, the first one is uh, we were talking about was a book of political humor. There's a, I'll tell the story behind it very quickly. So this goes back to within the first year or two that I started working for WGU. And keep in mind, WGU was small enough back then that I think I knew every employee. So, you know, we're talking about when we had, you know, 400 students and my job was to grow the university that was bleeding cash and would probably not have survived another two years. So, so anyway, I, I can't say that for certain, but but we did eventually begin to sort of rapidly grow and 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 then that pace looks like an exponential curve at this point. But but in any case, one of my sort of lunchtime hobbies was just to play around with writing some political jokes. And eventually the, I would test them on other people and the ones that people didn't like, I would throw them out. And I would write these periodically during lunch by myself. And I gathered them together and kind of polished them up a little bit and um, shared them with some uh, long lifelong friends. And one of them said, Pat, this is funny. These are funny. You need to do something with these. So I wrote some more. And then my wife, who at the time was writing for the Complete Idiot's Guide series, without okay. my permission, sent them off to her agent without my permission. And the agent said, oh, yeah, I can sell this. And so a couple of weeks later, we had a publisher for a book 
that, that <laughs> is called, you know, you're a Republican if, you know, you're a Democrat if. And I should have brought, I'm, I'm, I'm away from where I have a copy of it. I have it upstairs. <laughs> yeah, I'll put it uh, in the book links. Don't worry. Like I'll put but, it in the but, show notes. But anyway, it's a series of just paired comparisons of Republicans and Democrats that kind of make you laugh at both sides, if you will. Sure. And and I ended up publishing it under a, a pen name, Frank Benjamin. And okay. the funny story about that was when the publisher said, yeah, we want to do it. And I said, well, I'm thinking I'm doing it under a pen name. So we'd rather you do it under your own name. And I said, well, let me think about that. So I went and talked with Bob Mendenhall at that time, the president of WGU. And said, Bob, here's this book, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, kind of pokes fun at, you know, kind of Republicans and Democrats and kind of equal opportunity kind of uh, joking. And I said, the publisher wants me to do it under my name, but I was thinking I should do it under a pen name. And Bob says, you know, while you were describing it, he was like thinking, yeah, that's probably okay as long as you do it under a pen name. <laughs> <laughs> so at that time, you know, we were, I interacted with, you know, half a dozen governors on a regular basis from both parties. Western Governors University was founded by 19 governors, um, sure, many of sure. them actively involved, particularly in the early years. So I published that in, that was 2004, came out before that election. We've since then done some upgrades and two other additions. Edition. So the 2016 edition is the one that's that's currently in print and amazingly evergreen, meaning most of the jokes from are, are, are finding their way through. I always updated, et cetera. So it's called, you know, you're a Republican if you know you're Democrat if by Frank Benjamin. Now, I've always written as a as a hobby, children's stories, other kinds of humor pieces about 10 years ago. I was, oddly enough, looking for a big, fun project and decided to write a novel. The first novel got completed in fits and starts over the course of a couple of years, and I was just too lazy to really seriously try to find an agent, so I self-published that one under my okay. name. So that okay. one's under my name. Available on Amazon? It is. It is. It's okay. called uh, Fragile Memories, Broken Bonds, and generally speaking, people that read it, Really like it. I've had some people say, when's the sequel coming out? And novel number two, which is about three-fourths the way written, is not the sequel. It's an entirely different cast of characters and to some extent very male-oriented, but humor, humor-based, whereas the first one was more of a, you know, a crime mystery type novel. So that one I wouldn't look for for some time. So um, anyway, it, it's an interesting hobby. Most people think that when you when you want when you're a writer and if you're pretty good at it, you've got to publish. I'm not driven to that. Even the first joke book, which has sold sixty or seventy thousand copies, got published because my wife sent it off to <laughs> her agent. So it, it's it's one of my handful of, of very serious hobbies. So anyway, I hope you don't mind me talking about it. The, the new oh, one, no, is, no, it was, the new one is fun. Fast on fifty. So that one. That one, I'm really behind this new novel. It's it's fun, and I think it's pretty good. So it's called Fast on 50, and be finished cool. in the next three, two or three months. I will put it in the show notes, and we'll obviously <laughs> publish it to the listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think writing is very interesting. I I kind of my my running headline for my own my own call it bio, I, I guess, is to eventually. Obviously, I'm an entrepreneur, tech entrepreneur, but I want to be a published writer eventually by the time I turned 50. And I started writing some poems and working on my first, I went to Grand Canyon 
mid 2020 and I backpacked and wrote a memoir about that. I, I initially called it uh, Backpacking with Nietzsche, the philosopher, but now, you know, it's morphing into something else. It's a heavy read, but I'm hoping to publish it. Regardless, I think where I was going with that was it definitely excites me to write something. The only thing I don't like about myself when I write is when I finish it, I lose interest in it. So hmm. I have to get to a point where I stop from finishing it and just keep tinkering with it until I'm good. I'm, I'm happy with it before I write the ending. So anyway, that's, uh, that's some, yeah. some discussion we'll have after uh, this yeah, meeting. No, some of the, I see you're thinking when Nietzsche himself was a, a walker walked every day so i was thinking that was kind of an interesting interesting idea for a title and of course uh, uh, grand canyon i'm in i live in utah the grand canyon i think of is in my backyard i don't know if i went to any of the other national parks in southern utah but it, they're all pretty amazing there's five of them down there so yeah so no i i have never hiked deep into the grand canyon so it's uh, my knees now could not handle that so. Yeah, it was a full experience. I'll share the writing with you. But okay. before we end this, I want to ask you, like, I think we talked about different areas where higher education is going. I think WG is already leading the way in transforming and disrupting and innovating education. But I would like for, for you to give, paint me a picture on where education will be 20 years from now. If, uh, again, if there is a magic wand that will remove all the hurdles of, you know, regulation and legislation, where do you see education to be 20 years from now? Well, Kieran, as an entrepreneur, you know, it's hard to even look out three years, you know, in terms of your, your sort of products, et cetera. I, I think that the, the sort of the way to think about this, and I'm really, I have a tough time on envisioning what's going to happen with K-12 education, because for the last 20 plus years, there's been an increasing societal desire to cut spending for K-12 education and to, or certainly to limit it in many, many places. And that's probably not going to be good. And so if you think about education from for the elite, most successful students, I can kind of answer that question pretty easily. If you talk about what the future holds for, you know, what otherwise in the past would have been the, the bottom third of students it's it's not real clear, and maybe that'll give me a chance to come back to what we're doing at WG Academy. So the, the, the way I like to think about any kind of industry, including education, is it's driven by the customers and the payers. So the customers for education, K-12, and let's focus more on higher education, are going to be coming up with technology in their hands, in their blood. And so they will also be looking at things like what really is more meaningful to me in my life. And while you and I started talking about the traditional college experience, the data suggests already that a lot of young people are happy to pass on that. It's just not that big of a deal. And in fact, a lot of them go into traditional education and kind of say, this isn't a big deal for me. I mean, literally, do you know how many 16-year-olds yep. don't even care about getting a driver's license these days? So, you know, so the, the customer is going to evolve and they're going to demand higher value in terms of their values than what we see now. And maybe that will mean that there's a, a greater fragmentation. Maybe that will mean that there are a number of students who basically finish high school and go, I want a job. 
I want to learn. I want to do hands-on. I'm going to pursue an education that has an internship. There are others going to be that are going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm really ready for a really great digital online experience. I get my other kick somewhere else. And then there'll be maybe the segment that's holding on to, you know, the traditional higher education experience. So it, it's, it's very possible that it will, that it will fragment. And arguably, online education started that fragmentation 20, 25 years ago, and technology could could take us into you know very very different different ways. So it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise us. There's also a, an increasing evidence that now even the parents are looking at this from what we call an, an a learn and earn approach, meaning the the objective of education is less about the whole kind of comprehensive experience than it is about being able to learn in a way that helps somebody earn. So that is going to have a ton of energy in the next five years and will mean that schools have to put increasing emphasis on helping individuals prepare for, for jobs and careers. And oddly enough, that's going to run counter to the fact that jobs are going to change so darn fast. Right, exactly. So, so you preparing for a job is is not going to be enough. And in fact, what what's going to be more and more important is helping individuals develop the other kinds of what sometimes are awfully called, I say, called soft skills. What they really are are their their thinking skills, learning skills, creative skills, communication skills. The fact that they get called soft skills is a disservice. These are the core skills. Yep. that employers are looking for for people that are going to advance, not to mention ethical and you know things like team player, et cetera. So education has to figure out how to incorporate all of these other critical competencies that have nothing to do with math, have nothing to do with learning artificial intelligence or chemistry or anything else, other than how those fit together to help somebody be a, a better thinking individual, ethical, civic-minded, you know, and able to contribute to society. So all of those things are going to kind of weave in and out of this story of learning and earning over the future. And employers will probably have increasing clout over the next five years as to the directions that that education is going to take because they're they're struggling. I mean, WGU yeah. essentially got started because employers were unhappy with the competencies of, of college graduates. So anyway, that's kind of my, my sure. vision. Certainly technology is going to play a part in it. Employers are going to play a, a key part in it. But ultimately, the, the customers who are the payers, the, the users as the in the students, and then the people who eventually pay for that product by giving them jobs, et cetera, are all going to have a say in, in the evolution of, of higher education. And K-12 is, is more worrisome. WGU Academy, just to wrap up with that, WGU Academy is now, um, after having been nurtured as part of WGU, is a separate 501c3 nonprofit corporation under the WGU umbrella. And our mission actually is to help individuals of any age even now we're doing a couple of experiments within high schools, but let's just think of it as high school graduate on any age to be more, to be both academically and more importantly, psychologically ready to be able to complete a credential, associates, bachelors, masters, either at WGU or at some other institution. So one of the That's reasons great. why we're independent is because we're partnering with other 
organizations and institutions, including foundations and people like that, that are concerned with with young people or those who dropped out or who you know have a little bit of college that was unsuccessful and helping them develop the the psychological strengths grit persistence self-awareness mindfulness which is critical and you know an awareness of what it means to be able to change their habits and and we have some very unique approaches that we take to helping students develop those sets of competencies even while they're maybe tackling an academic course so uh, this grows out of, in some ways, WGU's mentoring experience, but also some predecessor courses that WGU has developed over the years. WGU Academy has, you know, we've modified that for, for our needs, et cetera, but it's really exciting to see people who otherwise would struggle primarily because of their lack of confidence in themselves, the sense that they don't belong, even though they want to get a credential. It's great to see an almost transformative effect in somebody's belief system. And often it's people that are first generation, did not have family that went to college, perhaps came from a, a weak K-12 environment. So in very WGU fashion, we have a great belief in the ability of individuals to do more than many other people think they can and to develop their competencies, including their psychological competencies in order to be successful. So that's kind of the mission of WG Academy and, and kind of how I'm ending my, my career in higher ed. That's great. Well, this is great to, that's great to hear. I like the fact that the future is about holistic development of a student, specifically to support the student, regardless of whether where they're in the learning journey or their career path, and also specifically to support the ultimate beneficiaries of this learning, which is the learner and the employer and uh, your work with WG Academy to help students be better prepared for their credential is really valuable because that is where the real drop-off is. Pat, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. you. I look forward to having you on the podcast soon and look forward to realizing the future that you drew for us come real as well. Thank you so much. Well, Kieran, it's been great talking with you. I'll share with you uh, via subsequently uh, links over to, to the two existing books. And I'm looking forward to you continuing to write. It's hard work. Don't worry about whether or not the rest of the world falls in love with your writing. It's really something that you start with doing for yourself. And, and then you can you know, find out whether or not it's something you need to publish otherwise. But um, you know, And thank yep. you very much for the invitation to talk about education on your podcast. Absolutely. Thanks, Pat. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast. And share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.